Hey, Three Crosses family, welcome to the Going Deeper podcast. My name is AJ Venegas. I'm the director of Life Groups here at Three Crosses Church. And today we're going deeper on 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. So let's go deeper. Here with me today for the third time is Pastor Danny. Pastor Danny, we're going to jump right into the text today. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Uh, there are a couple fun words in there to think about. Uh, the first one comes from with minds that are alert. Uh, scholars have pointed to the fact that this translation could be girding up your loins. I know it can be a funny phrase in our modern thinking, but girding up your loins was a phrase that God used for his people to prepare them to prepare for the exodus. Um, the second term that is thrown in here is being fully sober. I think we think about that with alcohol, but there's this sense of discipline and self-control in those two things. So it's almost like he's saying, be prepared to think and be prepared to act because of the hope. And so there's three different imperatives in this section that we're going to be following. And the first one is hope. And so here we have this, this concept of preparing your minds, preparing your disciplines, disciplinary self for this hope. But there's also one key word at the beginning, which is therefore. And so whenever you see a therefore, I think it's good practice to pause and think about what are the arguments that preceded this point to get Peter to say, prepare your minds discipline yourselves for this hope. Pastor Danny, could you help us get our minds around the conversation that has happened thus far to get us to this point? Yeah, the uh, I love that kind of, I get this image of the starting blocks, right? Someone's about to pull the, start, the trigger on the starter pistol and you're about to go after this race. And so it's okay, prepare, right? Your legs for running, prepare your mind for engagement. But that therefore is critical because the first opening section of First Peter sets the tone for how we're supposed to experience this passage to come. And if you remember in verses 3 through 12, one sentence, an exordium, Peter saying, God is good, he is amazing, and you're in a good spot, right? You feel like you're far from home. You feel like there's no hope in this world. You feel like a marginalized person because of your faith. But actually, you're in a great spot. God is good. He is working. He is moving. You are in an amazing place in the salvation history of God's people. And God is going to use you in this foreign place to transform the world around you, to be transformed by the spirit and to be prepared for the heaven, which will be your eternal kingdom living in this place with God and his people forever and ever. So put your mind wrapped around that. And now let's talk about these imperatives, these commands, these things we can do from that context. And so with that encouragement, um, why do you think the first imperative here is then hope? I love that Peter makes the first imperative about hope, right? Set your hope is the verb that comes out, this command, this imperative. And I love that what Peter is trying to ground us in over and over and over is timelines, right? And so this idea of hope we talked about having a living hope. He's talking about today. That was last week, living hope. Uh, but also this hope that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming, right? And so he's saying, okay, remember this amazing place you're in. And now before you do anything, 
before you live any certain way, before you act in response to this, the first thing I want you to do is imagine the finish line, right? And the finish line is not anything about you. It's this inheritance, this hope, this beauty that will be revealed, the salvation when Jesus comes back. And so he starts by setting our minds, not merely for action in this world, but setting our minds on the reward on the other side of this thing. So I know he's not using race imagery, but I just keep thinking about, he's saying, hey, keep your eye on the prize. This is the thing that's coming up. So start by picturing the future. It's a great illusion uh, thinking about the exodus here because you're preparing for this journey uh, that you're going to embark on. We talked about suffering a lot last week as well to then get to that hope. And so um, preparing that similar feel um, of the exodus there, girding up your your loins, your, your mind, preparing yourself, disciplining yourself, all those things. And so Peter continues in verses 14 to 16, talking about how we can sort of do this. He says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So obviously there's one word that stands out there, holy. Be holy. That's our second imperative that we see in this section. Um, Holiness is kind of a Christianese word, but uh, a couple observations before we get to the question here. Uh, This awfully sounds like Romans 12, 1 to 2, talking about offering your body as a living sacrifice um, and being transformed by the renewing of our minds here. And so there's a lot of similarities going on there. And then obviously you have this term, holy, which is kind of a foreign concept to us, but we say it a lot in in church. And so one of the questions that I want to talk about is just clarifying, how do we feel about holiness in this context? What do we think that Peter is saying here when he says the word holy? And how does that kind of encapsulate our Christian life as we think about these things? I love how you pulled out Romans 12, one through two, right? Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. And what Paul does is he says, hey, look at this world in which you live. Don't be like that. Be different. Peter does something similar, but I feel like expands it in a beautiful way because he doesn't merely say, look at the people in this world and the patterns that they live in. He says, look back at your old way of life as obedient children. Don't conform to the desires you had when you lived in ignorance, right? So we already talked about, he says, look forward to when Christ returns and gives you salvation. Then he says, look backwards to the passions that you followed ignorantly in your days of unbelief. And then he says, now also look at God who he himself is holy. And in the midst of all of these things, the future reality, your past sinfulness and the holiness of our God, the holiness that we walk in comes in the midst of that context. So that idea of setting your minds to be alert, right? 1984 NIV says, prepare your minds for action. It all starts with our thinking of think of the future, think of your past, think of God's eternal reality. And now in the midst of all of this, be holy in all you do. The context is everything swirling around you. I want to dive a little bit deeper into this holy conversation because of that quote that he says here, be holy because I am holy. Another great practice in uh, diving into scripture is when somebody quotes something, you should probably go and visit what that quotation is Mm. just to kind of get what the sense is. And Peter, we obviously talked about at the first episode, he's entrenched in this Jewish culture. And so he's quoting here uh, from Leviticus. 
And now I know a lot of listeners might have just taken a deep breath saying, oh, I got to navigate Leviticus. But uh, these this quote's coming from chapter 19, verse 2, chapter 20, verse 7, uh, chapter 11. Um, it's all over the place. And one of the key themes of Leviticus is getting a community of people to act in a certain way that isn't like the Canaanites, that isn't like the Egyptians where they previously came. And so um, this is where I think the skeptic question comes. When Peter invokes Leviticus here, he's invoking almost, it almost seems like he's invoking an entire book. And I know there's a lot of conversation about how we should read Leviticus, how should we sh- how we should read their laws, how we should read their purity codes, how we should read their um, calendar dates. You know, I think about the inheritance that shouldn't perish, spoil, or fade. There's a lot of death, impurity, and celebration of time infused into those words. So what I want to ask you as a sort of a skeptic perspective, um, what do we do with the book of Leviticus where it says be holy? And how do we apply that to both First Peter's context and our context? When we think about holiness, we always have to think about it in relation to something else. And so in Leviticus, there's this concept like you brought up, you're going to have to be different than the Canaanite people, right? So you can build a definition of holiness as being different from the world, right? In Leviticus, and Paul quotes this in his epistles, come out from the unclean thing and be separate, the King James Bible says, right? And so there's an idea of holiness is difference, differentiation, separation from the pagan practices of this world. Peter defines holiness in this context. There's a little bit of that. We see that, like we just said, of Think about how you used to live in the world, be different than that. But then when he grounds it in this verse, which I think is a a more ultimate reminder, that ultimately holiness is not defined by how different you are from the world or what you think holiness is in your brain. Holiness is defined by the person of God himself, right? Be Mm -hmm. holy because I am holy, And so when you think of something like a Leviticus, Leviticus is God writing laws for his people to live in obedience towards that somehow reflects who he is amongst the nations of the world and shows the distinctive power and character and nature of our God. And so that's the interesting thing about Leviticus, right? It's because we all, our eyes glaze over because we start thinking about like, wearing coats of two different types of right fabrics interwoven, or we think about all these dietary restrictions, these things that have been fulfilled and no longer a part of our covenant relationship with God currently. But I think that's actually really important to wrap our minds around is that holiness for us as human beings is not merely being good people, but it's living in obedience to God and reflecting his character intentionally within a world where we are called to reflect his glory to others. I appreciate David in Psalm 119 talking about how beautiful the law is because we have a hard time wrapping our heads around Leviticus because uh, where's the beauty in it? But uh, we were just talking earlier um, about some cutting room floor material and uh, I'll contribute my piece here. Um, I was reading a book by Dan Kimball. He was one of my professors. He wrote a book called How Not to Read the Bible. And Leviticus is obviously one of those major ones, but he brought up two great examples. Pastor Danny, did you know that in around the 1920s, it was illegal to carry ice cream in your pocket? Oh, that makes a lot of good logical sense. <laughs> right? Because what when you dive into the law, into the context of the law, uh, people were putting ice cream in their pocket to lure horses 
uh, and steal them essentially from their owners. And so when you dig deeper into the context of the law, you kind of find the, the heart of God behind it, the heart of justice, the heart of love, the heart of, you know, protecting his people. And I, I feel like if we do our cultural homework, a lot of the times within the context of Leviticus, we find God's heart behind it and we can draw from that as well. I love that. I was, you know, the, the joke that I made a few moments ago about wearing clothes that are interwoven with two different fabrics. Right. One of the major themes of Leviticus is that idea of being distinct mm. from the nations in which you live, right? Mm. So not intermarrying with a pagan people, obviously is a, a law for God's people that was designed to remind them not to intertwine their worship practices with folks who worship other gods, right? Not to sacrifice their children to idols like the Baal worshipers do, mm -hmm. right? And so even a law like not wearing a coat with polyester, cotton blend or whatever <laughs> is not because God cares that much about our clothing, but it's because God weaves into their lives a reminder that we are supposed to be pure and distinct and separate. And so I don't think God has something against poly cotton blends, but I do think that what God is even doing in a law like that is helping his people to just sear on their hearts. We are supposed to be pure and different and pure in our worship. And even those silly laws that we might laugh about are woven together to remind them of what God would have them to do in that specific context, right? And of course, today we still should not be worshiping Baal, uh, but I think I'm okay wearing the shirt that I'm wearing right now. It seems like the common theme of holiness is going to God and living according to what he has called us to. And so in that we have imperative number one, which was hope. We have imperative number two, which was becoming holy, being holy like he is holy. And then we come to this third imperative, which comes out of verses 17 through 19 which I'll read for you real quick. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with precious, the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So I have a couple of things here that I wanted to talk about and I wanted to ask you. Um, it seems like he's invoking two different things in terms of the command to live out your time in a certain way as a foreigner and in reverent fear. He's invoking one, you're calling on the father who judges each person's work impartially. But then he's invoking two, that you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And so I want to put these two together because so often, you know, I was taught, like when I approach that throne room of God in that final day, God's going to look at me and he's just going to say, good job, you're in. But it's interesting because Peter is like invoking living out a certain way by alluding to God as the judge. And so I wonder what exactly is going on when he pairs these two together here. And how might that help us think better about what for, uh, Peter's trying to do? Yeah, I think, again, all of this in this passage is talking about setting our mind on something that would equip us for righteous living in this world, in this part of God's redemptive timeline today. And I would, reading that sentence about the Father's judgment and living out your time as foreigners here, I pair those two things together. Mm -hmm. right? So he's setting this context that you live in the world but you are ultimately not judged by the opinions of the non-believers in this world. You're ultimately not judged by the authority figures of this world. You ultimately are not a citizen of this world. 
you ultimately call upon a higher authority, right? And so he says, remember, your judge is not the court of public opinion. Mm. Your judge is not a literal judge in the court of law. You are an alien, a stranger here. This isn't even your land. Your judge is in the heavens. And I love that whenever he talks about God, he's careful to show how beautiful and glorious it is, right? Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, he's not just your judge. He's the perfect, glorious, amazing judge. But remembering that he is the one who ultimately gets to tell you how to live and gets to evaluate how you live life on this planet, live your life in accordance with that. Don't come at home here. Don't treat this place like it's your home. Live like you're a tourist on a visa to visit earth for a time because your citizenship is in heaven and the one who really, whose opinion truly matters in your life is the God who judges and he judges impartially. Follow-up question for you. What do you think about the concept of the precious blood of Christ? We just got done talking about Leviticus and now we're referencing again a lamb without blemish or defect. And so how do those, how does that, play into this conversation. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot of interplay between these two verses. There's a, a blemishless, defectless lamb that kind of links with this perfect, impartial judge, right? So this idea of Christ is perfect, God is perfect, weaving these things together. The idea that the blood of Christ is because the lamb was put in the seat of judgment and was judged on our behalf. And so there's judgment language, even with the atonement of the lamb of God that comes in a moment. And I think just a reminder of, listen, it's not like you became a Christian. All of a sudden, like you just merely lost your Pontus residency or your Pontus citizenship. You became a Christian and you were bought out mm-hmm. of this empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers. So the, the reason that you are now a foreigner, a stranger, an alien in this place is because God saw fit to send his own son to come and die on your behalf to purchase you out of the systems of this world. And it's a beautiful, imperishable thing. He keeps going back to these same adjectives from, you know, we talked last week about those three adjectives that all start with the letter A, right? Without perishing, spoiling, fading, Christ himself is this lamb that is perfect without defect. This thing that God has done is so amazing. He can't stop saying, but you've been bought into this new reality. So it's not merely changing your way of thinking. It's not merely consider yourself a tourist here, but it's you were bought by a price from the systems of this world. And so live your life in response. What stood out to me in terms of just digging deeper into this text, uh, that word redeem, you know, that, that's another Christian word that we like to throw around. The Greek word there is el, elutrothete, which is the Greek word for a manumission of a servant. So I love the way you're saying bought out, God purchased us. Uh, you can look for Psalm 34 for some context there. Uh, another word that stood out to me in, in this was anastrophite, which is the imperative. This word has some relationship to the Greek thought of ancestral tradition. So it's that he purchased us, but he also purchased us into a family where we can learn from our ancestors, which makes me think of Hebrews 11 and talking about how each person by faith did something. And again, going to the call, of, they set their hope on something that was not seen. They set their assurance on it. They you know, lived in a certain way that they responded like Noah built an ark. He did something. And now we're being called to live out our time in a certain way, in a very similar way, which brings us to the third and and final question here. uh, That comes from verses 20 to 21. It says he was chosen before the creation of the world, 
but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, which I think he's speaking of Jesus here, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. So again, cutting room floor material. Uh, we are reading similar um, commentaries. And one of the quotes that stood out to me came from Eugene Boring in his commentary. Um, so I'll read this quote really quick. The theocentric, God-centric orientation of First Peter as a whole is clearly expressed in the sentence before us, which is the verse, which on the surface seems to be thoroughly Christological, meaning about Christ, but in which God is the hidden subject throughout. God is the Father who judges all impartially. God is the Holy One to whom reverent fear is appropriate. God is the one invoked in prayer. God is the one who ransomed the readers from their past futile life. God is the one who provided the Passover lamb whose blood signaled their redemption. God is the one who foreknew, destined Christ before the foundation of the world. God is the one who manifested, revealed Christ in the eschatological times in which the readers live. God is the one who raised Christ from the dead and glorified him. The crescendo of God's mighty acts, some of which are expressed by the divine passives, is climaxed by the declaration that all this happened so that their faith and hope might be in God. God is the hidden subject in the title Christ, which essentially means the anointed one, none other by God himself. So this Christological section begins and ends with God language. Christological language does not answer the question, who was Jesus, but the question, who is God? The subject modulates back and forth so that God and Christ are not two distinctive topics. To talk of God is to talk Christologically about Christ. And to make Christological statements is also to talk about God. So I think this is this last sentence here that is referencing God. He, he makes this connection between Jesus and God, as Eugene Boring is saying. Um, it just shows us that Jesus is pointing us to Yahweh. He's pointing us to the Father. Yet at the same time, in Trinitarian language, Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. And so my question to you, thinking of, through about the relationship between the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, how they're equal in essential substance, but different in personhood, how does this change the way we worship? How does this change the way we pray? How does this change the way we, you know, come here to Three Crosses Church and celebrate um, what Jesus has done for us. Yeah, I love what Peter's doing in his book so far. In every passage, he's grounding his audience in something bigger, mm -hmm. right? And so we've talked a lot about how they're grounded in a bigger timeline. They're in these last times. God did work in the past. Christ raised from the dead, initiated this new covenant. You are with him. Someday he'll come back. This kingdom you are an inheritor of, and you're part of this bigger timeline when you feel like you're in this silly little timeline here on planet earth. It's bigger. And here he even says, your Jesus, in a sense, is bigger than the Jesus that you experienced right here on this earth. Hmm. Right? And so there's this concept that, yes, Jesus is God himself. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God who walked this earth earth, lived a holy life, died for our sins, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven. And yet Peter points out in this last verse of our section today that Jesus is part of a God who is bigger than merely the human that we remember as Jesus Christ and know as Jesus. That like you said, God did all these things, 
But in the same way, when you believed in Jesus, you believed in a God who is bigger than merely the Jesus you experienced. He's part of the triune God. And I think where that relates to me in the world we live in today, you know, we you talk a little bit each week about skeptics and folks uh, who try to kind of put together Christianity in a way that makes sense to them in the world in which we live. And, and I know everybody's trying to kind of stumble around and figure out the best way to follow God in our lives. And, and yet I think one of the warnings that we get from a passage like this for our own lives is that we, in our culture today, I see are pretty tempted to make God smaller than who God actually is. Hmm. Right? I talk to people all the time who would say, you know what? I, I love Jesus. I love what he did, what he stood for, right? I believe he died for our sins, rose again. Just kind of when I read the whole Bible and the God of the Bible and kind of this bigger concept of God, I'm not into all that. And so I'm going to focus in on Jesus, right? Take this whole big pie we call God for, that sounds kind of sacrilegious. I probably shouldn't say it like that. But (laughs) we take this whole big concept of God and we say, I want this little piece of it. Mm. And Peter takes it opposite. He says, no, take this little piece of God, this beautiful piece of God um, called Jesus in his ministry on earth, a snapshot in time and a snapshot of the Trinity in a sense. And don't forget that the Jesus you worship is part of a triune God who is bigger, right? And you, mm-hmm. you mentioned a lot of the, the core tenets of Trinitarian theology, that we will worship a God in three persons, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are co-equal in nature and substance, and they are all worthy of praise and honor. And throughout the New Testament, in the Gospels, the work of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the words of the uh, authors of the New Testament, they all point to this fact that God, the triune God is worthy to be praised, right? We talked about that in week one, right? We have God, the father, the sanctifying Mm -hmm. work of the spirit, obedience to Jesus Christ. Don't forget that even when you're worshiping Jesus of Nazareth as a Christian in the East Bay today, you're worshiping a God who is bigger. You're worshiping a God who is currently sitting on his throne, this triune God, father, son, and spirit. You're worshiping a, a God who's Throne room is filled with smoke and there's angelic beings crying out, holy, holy, holy. We worship a Jesus who is the eternally begotten son of that father. We worship a spirit who eternally proceeds from father and son. We worship a big and glorious God who is our judge, who someday we will stand before, who has bought us out of this empty way of life, who's given us a mission, a purpose, an inheritance, who's adopted us as his children, who's given us new life in the midst of this world. He is great and glorious. And so my encouragement for us as believers in the 21st century today is do not reduce God to something smaller than he is, but work to understand and worship our God as the great and glorious one that he is. And so when we walk into our worship center on a Sunday morning, we don't merely think nice thoughts about Jesus. We are reminded that there is a throne room of God that from eternity past into eternity future, there are created beings on their face worshiping this God. And for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, we are grafted into a bigger reality than we experience in this world, not a small sliver of something else. What a beautiful way to round out an image of setting your hope on something, uh, being called to live a holy life, and then living out a certain way, knowing that Jesus is a reflection of this God who is bigger, but he also is God who has come to us in the flesh. And so I know that's a challenging question because it's that paradox that uh, they're 
separate but equal. And so, Pastor Danny, thank you for unpacking that and giving us this beautiful vision of what happens here at Three Crosses Church. You're welcome.